0: You're listening to the Unsiloed podcast with Greg LeBlanc brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc.
1: Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc. And I'm here today with Jordan Ellenberg, who is a professor of math at University of Wisconsin in Madison, also the author of a couple books. This book from a couple years back, How Not to Be Wrong, which The Power of Mathematical Thinking, which I really enjoyed, and the most recently book called Shape, The Hidden Geometry of Information, Biology, Strategy, Democracy, and Everything Else. And I believe the paperback edition is now out. You also write for a bunch of different periodicals. I think you've been writing for Slate for a really long time and, you know, a bunch of other places that people can
0: find your work.
1: Welcome, Jordan.
0: Thanks for having me on. Am I the first mathematician you've had on your show?
1: Uh... First, pure mathematician, but I thought, after I started reading these books, I realized you're not very pure after all, (laughs) because when I was reading through these books, I mean, you're touching on so many different domains. I mean, there are so many things that are familiar to me, right? So whether it's game theory, or whether it is decision theory, or political voting, or data science, I mean, all of these things that I think people like myself in the social sciences spend a lot of time with, I think we've kind of forgotten that it's all built on math. Right? You know, like when I when I go through and I, and I teach all my classes, I kind of feel like the math part of it is almost like the I don't know, the the grammar or the vocabulary that I'm using. It's sort of in there and it's implied and you know, you have this phrase where you say that math is kind of common sense by other means. And I tell my students in the business school that really what they're doing at business school is they're getting a PhD in common sense. And the students are always saying, oh, you know, there's all this quantitative stuff. And I've always thought that, you know, when I teach a thing on quantitative methods, I also teach a thing on critical thinking. And I always thought of the critical thinking piece and the quantitative methods piece as just sort of being two sides of the same coin. And and I think that kind of comes out in your work that the study of math is really in many ways the, the study of thinking. And when you teach math to people at the high school level, you, you start off the book, the math book with this story where the student asks, you know, when am I ever going to need this calculus? You know, when am I ever going to need this trigonometry? And, and the answer is, you're never going to need it. <laughs> well, most of you are never going to need it, but that's not a reason not to study it. Now, one of the questions I would have for you is, isn't this something that every teacher says i mean isn't the teacher of latin say this doesn't isn't the teacher of shop say this i mean doesn't everybody think that their discipline is something that's indispensable you know what is so special about math and of course geometry as well right because i think geometry is i didn't realize that geometry was you know sitting beneath everything but it really opened my eyes in that way
0: well, first of all, I'm 100% on board with team Latin and shopper, both valuable high school classes. I took both of those classes and I like learned valuable lessons from each of them. So certainly as a statement of value, I would be like, that's absolutely correct. Now, of course, there's competing demands on our time. You're a business school professor, so you know all about opportunity cost, right? Like, So everything you spend an hour teaching in high school is an hour you've chosen not to teach about something else. So I get that on some level, there's a certain amount of priority setting, that has to happen. And I think, you know, this is one of those areas where I think the conventional wisdom is like pretty on target that reading and mathematics are sort of what underlie everything else, But You certainly can't do math if you can't read. That's for sure. So I would say, I would say people don't necessarily at a high school level think of math as the unique indispensable thing. They think of math and reading and writing as the most indispensable things. And I think that's roughly right. But what makes math special. One thing I talk about a lot in the new book, and it's even something that's special about geometry as opposed to the rest of math, although in some sense it's common to all of math, which is that, you know, geometry is where you learn to construct an argument and write a proof, right? It's a unique place in the curriculum where we do this. And what's special about that is that it's this moment where we make knowledge by ourselves. We construct it, and it's not dependent on the authority of the teacher or the authority of a textbook right geometry is the class where we experience things that are correct because they're correct not because somebody told us that they're correct but because we can perceive directly that we sort of logically reasoned our way to believing something and that's an immensely powerful experience for a student to have and one thing i just learned while you know while researching this book and writing about it because you know i mean i write books about math but math is made of people so all my books are in the end, about people. I mean, I'm I'm not writing textbooks, right? I'm not writing books that are there to sort of like teach you step-by-step how to solve an equation or something like that. I mean, I do that in the classroom, but, you know, I'm writing about the history of ideas and and what you learn when you sort of study the history of geometry and just the people who thought about this is that again and again, people have this kind of life-changing experience of learning geometry and being like, wow, this is powerful. This fact that I can create knowledge, and understanding on my own without relying on anybody. And it's not the people you would expect, right? I mean, of course, it's the people who ended up being geometers. But, you know, it's also Abraham Lincoln. It's also Rita Dove, the former poet laureate, who has this amazing poem that I end the book with, this poem called Geometry. Boy, did I not know that there was like a famous poem called Geometry before I started writing this book. But And it's exactly about her experience, you know, in school. The first line of the poem is, I prove a theorem and the house expands. And it's about this sort of experience where it's like the whole walls are blown out by the immense force of this realization she has in her geometry class. And you just find that through history, people have that experience again and again and again.
1: Well, you mentioned a lot of people. I mean, I I loved all it was sort of a person after person after all of my favorite people. I mean, you know, you've got Pascal and you've got Euclid and you've got Bernoulli and you've got Poincaré and you've got Fisher and Keynes and, you know, Buffon, Fermat and Galton and all these people, it's like, oh, yeah, these are all my favorite peoples, but the, you make this, this point that one of the reasons why you learn proofs is because the world is filled with non-proofs, and, and I thought that was really, really insightful, right? Like, once you understand what a, what a proof is, then in, in some ways, the, the other explanations, the other stories, the other attempts at persuasion that you're exposed to they're, they're lacking in some way. I mean, it's not that they're not convincing. It's not that you shouldn't accept them, but that there is something different about this, the process of understanding what it means to construct something that is, that's truly solid, right? That's built on solid foundations to some degree.
0: And, you know, most, you know, things that we need to work out in real life, most arguments are not subject to a strict mathematical proof, that's for sure. But aspirationally it's very useful to know what a proof is that's certainly what was in Lincoln's mind right certainly Lincoln's motivation was he was going to court being an everyday lawyer and being asked to prove things and say I don't even know what that means like I don't know what that word means like what I'm, let me go back and read Euclid and understand what it means And so I think in real life yes in the end for matters of real world import we're inevitably going to rely on sort of arguments that have a lot of heuristic like a lot of persuasion like are sort of not sort of, Perfect, pristine, deductive proofs, but we should be aware of where they, as you say, where they're lacking, like where they're not that. And in particular, we should be aware of when they pretend to be that. That's where it's really useful. I I always like to say that you should always, one thing that math teaches you is every time you read somebody making an argument and they use the word therefore. You should be like, you're hiding something like you said that (laughs) you said the word therefore to make it sound like a proof, which is probably not. That's the place I should look. I just saw um, Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla. I saw that he had a tweet with therefore in it. And I can probably I already I forgot what the tweet was. But I do remember being like, yep, that therefore that's the weak joint. (laughs) Like that's where he's trying to jump from one thing to another that doesn't follow. It's a tell. You should always look for it.
1: Yeah. Now, look, I mean, a lot of periodicals, well, at least the more respectable ones, have fact checkers, right? I mean, obviously, social media is a different story. But, you know, most respectable newspapers and journals have fact checkers. And and I don't think that you can be a respectable academic if you're just constantly throwing out things that you call facts that aren't facts. But we don't seem to have kind of proof checkers or argument checkers or you know, even kind of inference checkers, right? So we see so many arguments. We see so many that are built on on data or that have some kind of quantitative element embedded in the newspapers or embedded in, in journals or even embedded in academic journals. And, and the, I guess the referees are supposed to be the ones that say, hey, you know, this is misleading. But you can be misleading without saying anything that is factually incorrect, right? And I think you're arguing that, you know, being exposed to the process of, of proofs forces you to decompose each step along the way and to highlight, you know, when a step is, is skipped or when, you know, an assumption that you start, all the steps might flow from this axiom that you're proposing, but that you don't really do it in an explicit way. And, and I found that to be, I was like, okay, that's why I do this. That's why I'm always doing this. It must go back to my days when I was studying geometry, right? That that shaped me somehow at a very young age and and forced me into this constant kind of rigorous scrutiny that I take to everything that I see in my my discipline.
0: Yeah, it's a great point that we have fact checkers, but we don't have inference checkers, right? Like if they can say like, you know, X, Y, Z, and W are right, but does W follow from X, Y, and Z? Or are they just saying that? And actually, you know, I find this is... mathematical habit that i find sometimes i want to write an article for a periodical that says okay people say that because of x it must be the case of y and that argument is not right and then people will invariably if i write that so you're saying y is not right i'm like no i'm not saying y is not right i'm just saying it doesn't follow from x maybe y is right maybe y is not right we don't know (laughs) but the claim that it follows because x is wrong and i think i still would say i haven't mastered that's a tough subtle kind of article to write and i feel like i still haven't mastered how to write it in a way that doesn't leave people think I'm arguing about the correctness of why, (laughs) you know what I mean? About the correctness of the argument. So I guess, you know, as a popular math writer, I think one of our goals is to get people to think about inference, to get people to think about every time they read something that's to be persuasive in a newspaper, it's always of the form, because this, you should believe that. And thinking about that inference as a thing in itself is, but you're right, fact checkers, can't do it right i think as if you if you write an opinion piece in the newspaper they're going to check whether you a quote is correct but the argument they think that's they would say that's the province of the opinion writer like that's up to them to have it's not to us now a good editor by the way will certainly push you i mean writing for the post writing for slate like stuff like that you know they have very good editors there who will send you back your piece and say like i don't think this is strong enough i think you need like an example to sort of, if you're saying this is a phenomenon that happens, give us an example so that there's some evidence that that is, a, you know, I mean, they'll, they'll, they'll do that to an extent, a form of argument checking.
1: But one would think that at the academic levels, right, at least we would be a little more rigorous. And I think we are a little more rigorous, but there's so much, you point out a lot of examples of, you know, what we call file drawer effect or, you know, P hacking, right? And I think some disciplines are getting a lot more uh, rigorous about kind of, screening these things out. But you know, why is it that if you're in psychology or if you're in economics or if you're in some other social science?
0: Well, am I allowed to ask you questions? Because I'm, I'm curious, actually. I don't know very much about business academia, even though I have a PhD student who's now a business school professor, newly. But like, what do you think is the state of things in business academia? Do you think the standards of inference are high, low? Like, Do you think it has the same problems that you see in, like, in psychology or the other social sciences?
1: Well, I mean, I think it depends on the, it depends on the school. <laughs> you know, we have here at Berkeley, we have some folks that are kind of at the forefront of this movement to kind of investigate p-hacking and, and file drawer effect and, and so forth, and sort of insisting on people pre-registering their studies uh, and so forth. But, you know, I think what happens is kind of like a, a ball of mercury. I think that when people become kind of more rigorous about examining some assumptions, their kind of ability to engage in unquestioned assumptions just kind of moves to another domain. I don't know whether there's kind of a, a law of thermodynamics that applies to kind of unexamined assumptions, but but I don't think any discipline is is perfect. But, you know, certainly business school has been better over the last couple of years, particularly in the area of uh, organizational behavior. So, organizational behavior has gotten a bad rap because it's built on social psychology and it's sort of the the poster child of 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 bad empirical methods so i think i think there's definitely been some progress
0: but just to say should we talk about file drawers are all of your listeners already completely conversant in what that is or should we talk about what the file let's talk
1: about it well yeah
0: i mean so there's this famous
1: texas sharpshooter effect there's lots of different names you can apply to it right
0: Right. Baltimore stockbroker. That's what I call it. And how not to be wrong. So I mean, so fundamentally, the problem is this, that we use this kind of standard for determining whether we consider an experiment, whether it be in social psychology or biology or or even sometimes in physics or like, you know, in many other subjects. We have this standard called statistical significance, for whether we take an experiment to be successful. And that's going to determine like whether the paper gets published in a journal, it's going to determine like what how people cite it in later works. And it's a surprisingly hard thing to explain, partly because probability is itself by the way like really hard for our intuitions to handle. It's something the theory of probability comes really late in the history of mathematics. Now when I say really late, I mean like 400 years ago, which in the history of mathematics means like quite recently, but even still, right? Sort of geometry is totally set up. Algebra is totally set up. Calculus is totally set up. Like, before there's anything, and all that time, people are like, probability, well, random stuff. It's not math if it's random, right? Math is about determined, absolutely true things. So, probability, difficult, statistical significance. Roughly speaking, what it says is that the result of an experiment is statistically significant if, and now you have to sort of twist yourself in knots and say a weird counterfactual were it the case that the intervention you're studying had no effect, then the chance is less than 5% that you would see results as good as you actually got. So it's a very weird mental thing to think about because you're saying supposing I lost and my hypothesis is wrong and like this this drug doesn't work or this social intervention has no effect. Supposing that, what's the chance that I would get experimental effects as good as what I, in fact, got. And if that's like less than one in 20 times, you're like, oh, good, my that that's a good sign, right? It's it, That makes me feel like it's somehow unlikely in some sense that there's no effect. Well, here's the problem, of course, is that if you actually do 20 different experiments on 20 different drugs, even if none of them works, well, probably one of them is gonna <laughs> get experimental results that good. And if your publication system is that you try 20 or 200 or 20,000 different drugs, and only publish the, the papers where the drug, quote, quote, worked, you're basically going to see a lot of trash, right? You're basically going to see, like, a lot of effects that are not real published because you happened to get lucky the day that you did the experiment. I mean, you know, one way I put it in the, in the book, This is a, I read about this now. How to Be Wrong, is that we're impressed when something improbable happens. We're like, wow, like, that drug, like, look how much better the people did on the drug who didn't. So that's improbable. It's worth taking note of. I mean, improbable things happen all the time improbable things are very common. Like if you like open a book to a random page and look at it and you're like, wow, I have 432. What's the chance that I would have opened it to exactly the page 432? Like pretty small, right? The book has a lot of pages. That's a very unlikely event. And yet something in you knows not to find that remarkable, even though it's definitely improbable. So you see how your intuition gets like a little weird and twisted around, you have to be very careful. But the thing is, this notion of statistical significance that we use, I just wanna emphasize, cause I feel like it makes statisticians. it sounds like I'm saying like, boy, statisticians are dumb. Like why did they come up with this incredibly dumb standard? No, I mean, I wanna emphasize that like, this was developed, it was never meant to be a kind of yes or no answer saying, this is how we determine over 5%, false, no effect, below 5%, true, it's gospel, now we know something that's like truth for all time. We use it that way, because we use it to determine what papers to publish, but like, it was never meant to be that way. The way I say it or in the
1: what, p- Or what drugs to approve, right? Like we, have to, we have to make a decision. You either approve
0: the drug or you don't approve. I mean, you have to have some decision boundary, right? You have to have a decision boundary, but that doesn't have to be, we would say an epistemic boundary, right? That doesn't have to control like what you believe. You're right that the FDA at some point has to like, make a call and say like, yes or no, but we shouldn't use that as like, this works or this doesn't work right so the way i put the way i put it uh in the book is this an experiment or a statistical significance test it's meant to be the detective not the judge it's definitely giving us some information it's out there sort of getting information for us and changing our beliefs but it doesn't say the final word
1: but i think at some level people do have to have priors right i mean even if you try to take, say, a Bayesian approach, right? You know, you do have to, so whether, if you're just doing standard statistical inference, you, you have to make a decision as to what your null hypothesis is. So you're kind of planting a foot in the ground and saying, okay, this is where the burden of proof lies, okay? And, and that's, a, that's a decision that is done from outside of the method. You're bringing something from outside of the method to the method. And then if you're doing kind of Bayesian inference, you're starting with a prior. So, I mean, we would like to have things kind of have proofs all the way down, but it seems like you have to start somewhere. And, and I think you, you said somewhere in, in one of the books that you need to train students to deduce without denying that there's some intuition is going to creep in somewhere somehow. And so, how, I mean, do we need a system for, for policing that as well? And
0: that's not even bad. We're not machine. Yeah. I mean, it's not even bad. You know, your intuition creeping in like it's a contamination, but it's not bad. I mean, let me put it this way. Like, if you were, like, insisting, like, people don't like talking about priors because they like to feel like they're objective, right? They're like, okay, I'm just going to go where the data tells me. I'm not going to use sort of my prejudices. I mean, all these words, like, sound bad, right? My priors, my prejudices, like, my biases, blah, blah, blah. Then if you say, like, okay, well, really? Well, I did two experiments, and one of them was with a drug from an existing class of drugs that has been successful in similar diseases. And I tried this new one that I developed based on sort of some ideas I had about sort of like what molecular changes would be useful. And then the other one was like, I like waved like a crystal pyramid in front of the patient for 10 minutes. And as it happened, I got the same results in both trials. Do you really interpret those the same way? Do you really wind up with the exact same state of belief about the efficacy of those two interventions? Cause I'm going to be honest. I do not. And that's my prior and I won't apologize for it. But at the same time, I understand that there are procedural situations where, as you say, there's a decision boundary, and there are reasons why, let's say, a regulatory agency might be legally required to treat those two things in the same way in the same thing. I mean, just to argue against myself, and in another situation where this kind of thing happens, if you' are like a literal judge in a courtroom, you probably shouldn't be like, okay, I know the evidence, says what it says, but that guy like really seems guilty to me. You know what I mean? Like that's like, that's actually like inappropriate and wrong. So it's a challenging problem. I can say this, you know, my parents are both statisticians. I don't know if you know this. And so, you know, writing the book, I'm definitely, you know, neck deep in this methodological disputes. Like, are you a Bayesian or a frequentist? Never, if you don't know these words, never mind what they mean. It just means like, how much are you, in part, it means like, how much are you sort of willing to accept that you have prior beliefs that affect how you interpret the results of an experiment when i talk to my parents about this stuff they're like that's just philosophy nobody cares like you do what works like they're very applied they're not theoretical statisticians they're like very applied people they're like yeah like in that area i think people have like a lot of experience with what kinds of things tend to work and i think their experience is like pretty reliable so they i'm sort of they're not as interested in these kind of foundational theoretical disputes as like mathematicians are
1: but look, I mean you tell the story about how when in the early days when all of these observational studies came out that seemed to suggest a high degree of correlation between smoking and and lung cancer, right? There were some well-known statisticians like Fisher who were very skeptical of any causal relationship. They said, "Yeah, well, you know, correlation doesn't imply causation." And you know, that's true. And I guess if your prior is that look, 80% of the world smokes, So these non-smokers who seem to be healthy, there's the possibility of some underlying cause and and logically that's correct. But I think if someone suggested that to you now, you'd be like, that's crazy. Right. But back then it was like, yeah, that's, that's in other words, the burden of proof is, is on the, the people opposing smoking. And I think nowadays we would be like, look, you you better, you know, burden of proof is on somebody. Even if we haven't yet done an AB test with a 50 year lifespan, we haven't done an RCT on this thing. You know, I think that our priors have
0: changed dramatically. Do you mean about smoking or do you mean about like all kinds of things?
1: Well, about smoking, right? So, so you know, the general, I think everyone.
0: It was really interesting doing a deep dive into this for this is, I wrote about this in How Not To Be Wrong too. And I, you know, I too know this story about like, oh, Fisher like poo-pooed the link. But we actually did like learn a lot pretty fast. So I think at the time that Fisher first started saying this, it was like a more respectable thing to say because we really didn't know much. Now, later you go forward like five, 10 years and you have like direct studies where you're like, oh, yep, the people who like chewed tobacco, you can see the tumors. Like, I mean, you can see like the, differentially the tumors are located in the exact place where the tobacco was coming. I mean, you you actually had like a lot more information and it's a perfect example of the observational studies being the detective, not the judge, right? The observational studies told people, you know, watch out, this stuff might be like really poisonous. Maybe we should sort of do some direct, you know, experimental stuff, like, you know, sacrifice a lot of rats to like find out what's actually going. So I mean, you know, very quickly, there was like, the level of evidence became like much more incontrovertible. But the other thing is, it's a good example of this thing we were talking about, about your priors, because I think part of the reason people were slow to accept just how toxic tobacco was, was that, like, it's insanely toxic. People were like, nothing could be that poisonous. Nothing could be like messing up your lungs and your heart and your brain and like every single part of your body systemically. It must be that the people who are smoking were sicker somehow. Like there's no way one substance could be like that bad for you. But guess what? It is. In fact, literally just today, I was reading something and this is a good example of like, well, just an article that could have been improved with like more math that like somebody was like, you know, yes, it was sort of a defense of smoking and saying, well, yes, smoking is bad for you, but don't we do a lot of stuff that's bad for us? Like, don't we like look at Twitter too much? Like, don't we eat like too much red meat? It's like, yeah, I actually think like eating like a lot of red meat and looking at Twitter are both like kind of bad for you, but they're not like smoking bad. There's no comparison. So, I mean, I think it's like people like this kind of zero one reasoning where they're like, should you avoid things that are bad for you? If you're not willing to ask how bad, (laughs) I think you're gonna like go down some very bad reasoning channels.
1: But you also you also say that we should engage in efforts to disprove things as well as prove things. And, and I love this uh, way in which you, you describe this because it, it's sort of like stress testing everything. And sometimes if you're, if you're trying to prove something, if you try to disprove it, then you might actually come up with a proof. But but, you know, as soon as you start to feel pretty good about something, you want to default to almost instinctual attempts to undermine your argument. And and I think that's that's a habit of mind, which is very difficult for, for people. And it requires work and it requires discipline. And I think, you know, a training in math and, and geometry kind of helps to make it more kind of second nature. And so if someone is, is sort of pushing the envelope and saying, oh, well, look, hold on a second. Maybe we ought to rethink all these other dangerous activities. And, of course, you're going to circle back and say, yeah, okay, fine. After we've done that, we still come around to the idea that smoking is bad. But that doesn't mean that that exercise of stress testing this argument is a bad thing. It actually probably helps us to, to believe all the more strongly in the, the conclusion for having survived the, the scrutiny, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's another kind of, you know, healthy mental habit that I think you learn from math. If you're constructing a mathematical argument, you're always trying to find the weak points and being like, what could be wrong with this? Like, I want to make sure it's right. I mean, I don't know. Do you think people, because I've got you, do you think people in business do that? Like, if somebody's like the CEO of a thriving company, are they every day being like, okay, if somebody was going to short my stock or somebody was going to be like, this is why this apparently thriving company is actually trash and is about to collapse, like, what would they say? Like, what are the weak points? Do you think that's a habit? Absolutely not.
1: In fact, that's why we encourage business people not. to continue. No, I don't think it is. It's good. It is in the successful company. Should it be? But when you look at the comp, it should be. Absolutely. And in fact, I've done these exercises where I get executives together and I say, okay, I want you to, you know, figure out what are your orthodoxies and uh, let's expose them. And let's challenge them. And this is an extremely uncomfortable exercise, right for 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 business people, because it's a, for in business people, they value team, you know you got to be a team player and they they value unanimity and they value collegiality. And so anytime you start questioning the fundamental underlying premises of the business model, this is uncomfortable. Right. Or you question the uh, standard operating procedures or you standard, you know, the, the, the assumptions that underlie the, the model for success. Right. So, you know, this is why there's there's a people like myself can have a career, you know, uh, doing these interventions. Uh, I did an exercise with a bunch of executives a while back where I said, all right, today we're going to figure out how to put your company out of business. And they're like, well, that's no, like, we're not going to do that. We're not going to entertain the idea. And, and I had to sort of set up a competition te- among the teams. And once I got it more competitive, then they kind of dug into it and they kind of realized how fragile.
0: I guess I would have thought that a CEO every single day was like putting themselves in the mind of their competitor who was trying to destroy their company and put them in the poorhouse and being like, what's that person doing? Is that not what is that not their practice? Right.
1: You would. You would think, but that's that's sort of, you know, what we try to teach people, right? But I think it, ultimately what happens is that if you don't maintain that as a discipline, right, if you don't continuously force yourself to do that, then it's very easy to fall into a, a routine where you're just focused on kind of execution.
0: But I think it's so interesting because in math, I mean, yes, I have to put myself in that position of like a hostile interlocutor who's reading my paper and being like, can I find a mistake? And like, in general, math's not like that, right? We're not trying to destroy each other. We're like friends with each other. Whereas in business, the person, the CEO is not imagining that, right? There really are people out there like trying to destroy their business and put them in a warehouse. So it's, it's amazing to me that they're less, you know, inhabiting the mind of that person, given that that person's not actually imaginary.
1: Well, one of the companies that does this really well is Amazon, where, you know, people do subject their... Proposals to a great deal of scrutiny, right? And then they continually revisit this. And I think that companies that are faced with a high degree of competition are forced to do this. So for instance, startups, I like to say that the CEO of a startup is the chief experiment officer because they have to continuously sort of validate their hypotheses if they, if they want to get continued funding, right? The VCs are going to say, you want the next round of funding? You need to demonstrate to me that your idea is actually has legs.
0: I mean, I think, you know, the phrase I use in the book is, you know, you prove by day and disprove by night. And it is like a counterintuitive thing. You know, there's a thing you want to be true. And so, of course, you're trying to prove it's true and to like try to go against your own interests. Right. To be like, what if I were the kind of person who was trying to disprove this instead of prove it? Let me actually try. That's immensely valuable, partly because if you can't do it, if you fail to disprove it, that may give you some ideas about how to prove it. And in the same way, I would suppose that in business, if you're sort of trying to imagine yourself as your competitor, by understanding what challenges your competitors face in trying to defeat you, you understand your own strengths, which is very important. But I mean, in order to do that, you have to really be able to imaginatively inhabit the mind of your competitor, which is maybe not so easy.
1: Well, I think you have to foster this in the classroom. Right. So, you know, in in the classroom, if you don't have a robust conversation, if you don't have the people who are willing to be wrong. Right. I mean, in, in your book, it's how not to be wrong. But I, th- I think in order to minimize the likelihood that you're wrong, you've got to actually be willing to be wrong on a fairly regular basis and not to f- be afraid of being wrong. And and, you know, debate in, in the classroom is, is one way to do that. Or even, you know, debate in groups. We teach a lot of stuff in business school where people go off in groups and they work on stuff together. And it's in that group environment where people are supposed to start with trust and then use that trust to kind of stress test each other's arguments. And I think in the classroom, you talk in the classroom about how oftentimes math teachers don't do a very good job of this because what they'll do is they'll say something like, oh, look, it's easy, you know, it's, it's obvious, right? And when in really they should be saying, you know, it's, this is hard, like, you know, you're gonna have a lot of dead ends before you ultimately, you know, find a way towards the solution.
0: Yeah, I mean, and that's something, another thing I find valuable at writing these books and learning about the history of these ideas is it really kind of rips away the concept that these ideas are simple, like the ideas of algebraic notation, or even the idea of like a <laughs> negative number, which was like very, very controversial. Right. Like, is that a number or
1: perspective? It,
0: right. Like if you're like for a thousand years, like a number is like the answer to a question, how many? Well, a negative number, whatever it is, it's not really that right. It's like a new kind of thing. It's a conceptual leap. And we treat that for somebody who's like seven years old, like you're just supposed to say it and they're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, like that's immediate. It wasn't immediate for like, you know, the best mathematicians on the planet, like hundreds of years ago when it was being developed. So we got to respect it. But I think, okay, you said so much interesting stuff that I'm like, it's like a delicious buffet of like things to choose from for like what to talk about. But I mean, this thing you pointed to is so important, this thing about a group of people who know each other and has some built in trust. Why is that important? Because, you know, math class is very stressful for kids. We know that it's like one of the Classes that creates a lot of stress for kids, and one reason is that it is a venue where we tell people they're wrong. We don't do that in all of our classes, right? <laughs> Math class is a class where a student may volunteer something, may take that step of being bold and doing what they ought to be doing as a student and volunteering something, and the teacher is like, "That's wrong," and that's an unpleasant thing to hear, right? And I think in some sense, you know, the challenge in our classrooms is not to sort of say there aren't right or wrong answers to a math question, because often there are, but it is to create an environment where it's okay to be wrong. And that's a challenge that requires trust, right? That requires a feeling of community in the classroom where everybody in there feels like safe and okay saying something that might be wrong. And I think oftentimes you see people correctly saying, okay, we have to maintain The distinction between right or wrong in math class which we do but their vision for that is this kind of like punitive world where people are like punished for being wrong and rewarded for being right like they live in a bf skinner box and that that's going to make a better math classroom that is not going to make a better math classroom that's just going to make a classroom where people are like more stressed and refuse to say anything at all and as you say if you're not willing to be wrong if that feels too dangerous you can't learn
1: Well, what's also interesting is that we tend to teach something like math as if it is a finished product, right? And the the journey to get there is kind of hidden. And in the sciences, we do that all the time. I mean, when you take a biology class, you're not going to, you know, read Darwin. And and if you take a physics class, you're not going to read, you know, Galileo. But it, it seems like maybe we should consider you know teaching things in in maybe in a more historical way because then people can sort of experience the process of discovery i mean i think geometry is kind of like that because you start with the simple stuff and you kind of build up as if you're recreating the trajectory of discovery of you know euclid and his successors But if you just kind of say, "Okay, here here's what we've learned, and you just kind of throw it out there, then you don't you think of it as something you need to know rather than a a process or a way of thinking that you need to acquire. And so does that does that require a different way of teaching?
0: Well, I I mean, the the truth is that what you just said, I think, actually is the conventional wisdom about how to teach it and has been for a long time. Like, I'm not going to say that every class achieves that ideal. But, you know, you can look back, I, you know, I found in the research for shape, I found a survey that was given to American high school teachers in 1950, saying, like, what's the point of teaching geometry? These questions are not new, by the way, it's not like our generation that was the first ever asked this, right? So what, you know, why are we teaching this? And there were a lot of possible answers, like a multiple choice thing, you could vote in a poll. And like, you know, so that students will know about geometry, like know facts about triangles and circles and stuff like that. It did very well, but it was in second place. First place was to learn the habits of mind of rigorous argument right so exactly what you said like you know should we just be trying to make sure they know the correct facts about triangles or are we trying to teach this process by which this knowledge is built it's the latter that's the primary goal but that's not innovative teaching that's like always been <laughs> or okay not always right if you go back 150 years it's like everybody's got to like memorize euclid and be able to recite it like that's sort of a early pedagogy, but I mean, like, you know, in 20th century and 21st century teaching, it's basically, that's always the ideal that we've aspired to as math teachers.
1: Well, you know, th- there's this distinction between kind of, you know, logos and, and techne, right. And, you know, knowledge in the abstract and knowledge of how to do it. And And business schools, we always focus up, we always think that we're, you know, doing applied stuff, but you say that this idea that, oh yeah, I, I get the concept. I just can't, do the problem that you say well hold on a second right like if if you can't do the problem it's probably because you don't get the concept right how important is it that that you have to kind of do stuff in math rather than than just sort of have some kind of i don't know cursory i mean if you just if you kind of intuit the right answer that's not enough right you have to you have to actually get dirty and do stuff
0: yeah, I mean and I think that you know, I don't like to make like sweeping categorical statements although I kind of do that in the book sometimes, but um but in general, yeah, the way we test whether we've understood a concept is can we use it to do something. The goal is understanding, but the the test, the benchmark is can we do something with the thing we purport to understand. And again, I think, you know, people, when they talk about, you can call it logos versus techne, or you can call it, I mean, you know, in, in pedagogy, people say, um, you know, is the goal conceptual understanding or is the goal kind of fluency, like ability in math and a math classroom ability, to, like carry out a computation quickly and get the right answer. And like, this is kind of a non answer, but what kind of a classroom is it when we're not trying to get both those things? Right. I think, I mean, you know, the either or question is like, to me, like admitting failure from the start, because math is not math without both of those.
1: Yeah, it's like shop class where you don't actually make anything
0: right in a way.
1: But, you know, speaking of geometry, uh, you know, I, after I read the geometry book, I sort of got kind of confused because all the, a lot of the things that I thought were math, you know, turned out to be geometry. And, and I don't know, is geometry the new imperial science ta- kind of taking over everything? I didn't, I mean, one distinction you made is you said something to the effect that geometry involves the body, right? There's an extensive dimension to biology that maybe you don't have it in, in, in number theory, but then you actually kind of started baking a lot of number theory into the geometry book. So what where's the dividing line here between geometry and and math? Is there
0: is there a dividing line? There is none, of course, really. I mean, like one has to, I mean, obviously, yes, from the book, I have a very broad and Catholic notion of like what counts as geometry, but that's because that's the way mathematics has developed. I mean, I would say I'm a geometer, but I would also say I'm a number theorist. I would also say I'm an algebraist. I mean, one thing that's happened in the math of the last 100, 150 years is that those distinctions have started to be seen as artificial and they've become more and more dissolved. I mean, if you want, it goes all the way back to like another person who somehow I, I ended up not writing about that much in this book, but Rene Descartes, who sort of really launches this idea of what we now sometimes call like analytical geometry that, okay, a pair of numbers can be thought of as a point on the plane. Or we can think of it as a point on the globe, right? We do that like longitude and latitude. You have a point on the globe, a geometric thing, or like a pair of numbers, a numerical or algebraic thing. And those are placed in correspondence, right? You can think of the same entity as either geometric or algebraic. And the sort of flexibility of mind of going back and forth between those two two points of view is immensely productive. It enriches our understanding of algebra by making it more geometric, and it enriches our understanding of geometry by making it more algebraic. So basically, this is like my long-winded excuse for, in the end, there's not much about mathematics that's not geometric, if you think of it properly, or at least that's one way to think of it. So, I mean, a good example, I certainly didn't think I was going to write a lot about pandemic spread when I was writing this book, but I was writing it in like the spring and summer and fall of 2020. So, you know, what can you do? It's on your mind, right? I mean, you, you can't like force it out of your mind, but every single discipline on earth has something to say about pandemic spread, right? It's an inherently interdisciplinary subject.
1: I taught a course this semester on, on the pandemic in the economics department at Stanford. Oh, wow. So it was, yeah. And we went up, We wound up doing, you know, epidemiology and virology. And, you know, you can can basically, I mean, I always think of economics as the clearinghouse for everything, (laughs) every discipline thinks of itself as the kind of the capstone, right?
0: But I think of them as all as strands wound together. Like, in other words, I think if you try to think of pandemic spread as a math problem, you're gonna fail. And if you try to think of it as a biology problem, you're gonna fail. And if you try to think of it as an economics problem, you're gonna fail, like every one of those strands is there, and if you try to pull one out and be like, I'm only gonna think about that, you're gonna fail, right? You're not gonna get that much of the picture, they're inextricably wound together. I mean, it's amazing, by the way. I mean, reading about the history of epidemiology, they could do a lot before they even knew about germs, like, they knew nothing about the underlying biology, and they were still able to do something like, not what we can do now, but like that they could do anything is like truly. Amazing. But in any event, yeah. So, I mean, there's so many ways you can think about this. There's so many aspects to this problem, but one of them is geometric, right? One of them has to do with what is the geometry of the network of our interactions in the world, which in some ways, like the geometry of the globe, right? We're more likely to interact with people who like live right near us on the globe, have a similar latitude and longitude to us. But, you know, planes exist. Right. The, the, the geometry of the social world is not exactly the sort of physical geometry of the globe. I mean, the cities that are connected by airline flights are in some sense closer together. They have more contacts. And that geometry is extremely relevant to questions about global pandemic spread. So I wrote a lot about that in the book, both because I wanted to learn it because it was interesting and because, of course, at that moment, I was like really trying to. Yeah, I mean, you must I mean, this question, right? This question that was very active in March of 2020. You know, what happens if we shut down international flights? Right, that's not, it's not a math question, but it's not not a math question, right? It's not an economic question, but it's not not an economic question. It's not a biology question, but it's not not a biology question. And there's a legal question and there's a moral question. I mean, there's like all kinds of questions.
1: Well, I mean, for me, the the part of the story of the pandemic is, you know, you have to make assumptions, right? And you have to use models if you're gonna make decisions. And then the question is, how frequently do you update them, right? And, you know, if you're a startup, you actually seek out the information, you accelerate the arrival of information, you take actions, right? You direct your efforts to go and find the information that will allow you to improve your assumptions and figure out which models you should be using as quickly as possible. And so if if I were to criticize the public policy response to the pandemic, it's that you know we didn't consciously seek to acquire the information that we needed to do the sensitivity analysis around the models that we were kind of operating under right you know we would make an assumption and the assumption would kind of it would be sticky for a while right and the minute you make the assumption now all of a sudden that's the null hypothesis and but why would that be the null hypothesis you just kind of like picked it more or less out of thin air right at the beginning so I think we didn't stress test our assumptions frequently enough so that we could could modify and and so you know in strategy we always say okay you know lay out you can lay out your strategy, but you have to. A strategy is a series of if-then's. You know, if I learn this, then I got to switch to this. If I learn that, then I got to switch to that. And I think one of your quotes was, "I forget who you were quoting." Math is the art of giving the same name to different things. And and I was I was I was when you we were describing the origins of Brownian motion. You know, we use Brownian motion all the time in finance, and I always thought of it as you know diffusion of particles and so forth and then you're like no you go back and you say it's about mosquitoes <laughs> i had never i didn't know anything about this history was No, me
0: either actually i mean i i feel like i try to convey this impression that i'm like very erudite and knowledgeable but the truth is that like i sort of want to write about one thing and then i start researching and i find all the stuff it's connected to and then i like throw away what i was gonna write about and i write about the stuff that i'm learning because i'm excited about it i mean it's only fun to like write about stuff you're excited about so yeah for me too all these kind of interconnections of everything that's happening between like 1900 and 1910 with like the invention of mathematical finance and Einstein's explanation of Brownian motion and mosquito diffusion and malaria control and, you know, Pushkin's poetry and like all this crazy stuff kind of like all happening at the same at the same time. I, I didn't know that either. So I was excited to learn about it and write about it.
1: Now, one of the topics that I've spent a lot of time with on this podcast is machine learning. And, you know, we're, we're seeing math, I guess you could call it, sort of more and more at the heart of pretty much everything, right? And more and more so-called black boxes are kind of taking over a lot of the, the, the decision making. And so in a way, we're delegating a lot of stuff to data scientists, machine learning engineers, to algorithms, and so forth. And you could argue that when it comes to things like checkers, these things have demonstrated themselves to be, you know, extremely powerful. But in other domains, a lot of times people are concerned about the opacity, right, that is kind of within these these black boxes.
0: Yeah. And actually, as it happens, you know, I'm going to be at your place. I'm going to be at Berkeley sitting in as the science communicator in residence at this. Um, there's a big, a big workshop at the Simon Center for Theoretical CS about explainable machine learning, legible machine yeah. learning, right? To what extent can we yeah. open the black box and like, make machine learning systems that explain to us their reasoning, even as they do it. That's like a hideous anthropomorphization, I know. But like, you know, it doesn't, I guess, not everybody believes it has to be that way, is what I'm saying. Not everybody believes it has to be a black box. I mean, people are actively sort of researching ways to look inside. I mean, I mean, just was to say one thing where th- that I think, you know, we talked about this necessity to kind of argue about yourself and kind of seek out the failure modes instead of like looking away from them because they're unpleasant to think about. And I think machine learning is a great example where, of course, very naturally, and I don't critique this, people are really interested in the fact that it works really well. And people are really interested in sort of like pushing forward and finding more and more domains like where it works and where it gives good results. As a theorist, I think it's super interesting like when it fails. Like those are not cases to be discarded and move on to sort of find more successes. Like, no, if you really want to understand what's going on with machine learning, you want to understand the failures. And I think that's sort of, that's where we're going to move forward. I mean, ideally, right, we have so much compute to throw at things. We have so much money to throw at at buying more compute to throw at things. It is actually useful to have some idea of what's going to work in advance, right? I mean, and, and every field of applied mathematics has developed in that way. Like at first things work and we don't really know why. And then eventually we get a deeper theoretical understanding and we start to be able to do less trial and error and like have a, a a better ability to sort of choose the right approach first instead of just like throwing as much compute as we can and sort of like seeing if something works. And I, that's, it certainly seems to me like that's the way that field is developing. I mean, I'm like a mostly an outsider to it, but part of that is like thinking hard about the failures, thinking hard about what machine learning fails to do. I mean, you brought up checkers. The thing about checkers is it really puts pressure on idea of like, what's a hard problem and what's an easy problem. Or take Go, right? You're like, wow, like a machine can play Go really well. That's really hard. I mean, it is and it isn't. Go is a completely well-defined problem domain. It's hard in the sense that it's big, in the sense that there's a lot of states on a Go board, but it's not really different from the problem of multiplying two large numbers together. It's just much larger, but it's the same kind of problem. Right, like doing like automated translation or doing like text completion the way GPT-3 does, it's a fundamentally different class of problem than playing Go and presents challenges that playing Go doesn't.
1: Well, so look, when I teach data science, I I spend the first half saying, look, here's how these algorithms do a much better job than your carbon-based processor. Then after everybody's all excited, then I spend the second half talking about, all right, now here's, here's where the, the silicon screws up, right? And, you know, a lot of times that's just about basic common sense, as you might call it, right? You know, understanding the difference between correlation causation, right? Understanding what, what bias is and being able to identify it or, you know, lurking variables. I say there's, there's no algorithm that will tell you right? Whether there's a lurking variable, right? That's something where you have to figure out, okay, based on my domain knowledge, maybe I need to go and collect a new column of data, right? Kind of the human piece, the kind of common sense piece, and and make that kind of more and more, can we incorporate that more and more to the point where we just need to be the human who plugs in the machine? Or will there always be this kind of human common sense that's 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 going to be needed to plug the holes. Will we be able to automate your job away at some point?
0: <laughs> I mean, obviously, I don't know, but I can tell you what I would guess. But it's just a guess. I mean, in some sense, in any realm, the safest guess is that things are just going to kind of develop the way they have always developed in the past. Right. That's that's your highest probability guess. So that's what I'm going to guess that, you know, in the past, it's always been the case that we develop machines that have capacities that human beings don't have. Right. A car can drive a lot faster than we can run or even than a horse can run. And in the end, those machines are our partners. Right. Like they take certain tasks away from us, but they just enable us to do new things that we weren't doing before. And certainly that's been the case in mathematics. I mean, computers have been replacing mathematicians for 100 years already. Right. There are things that you could get a Ph.D. for doing in 1890 that now you would just like type into the computer and ask for the answer to the computation and it wouldn't be your Ph.D. thesis. It wouldn't be research. So we, I guess what I'm saying is like computation changes the boundaries of what counts as research and what is mere computation. Right. Computing digits of pi isn't math anymore, but it was at a time. <laughs> now it's not so. You know, we're kind of like running ahead of the fireball here. Like, yes, there are certain things that I spend time doing that in the future a machine will be able to do. But there will be new things that I can do in mathematics or my successors will be able to do that they can only do because they have that support from the machines. And those are the things we will call mathematical research then. And certain things, maybe the things I do, maybe not, will be reclassified as computation. That's only a guess, but I'm only saying that's what's always happened in the past. So that's probably our safest bet as to what will happen again.
1: Now, one of the things that, that struck me when I was reading both- What, the,
0: about, what about the CEOs? <laughs> you think there'll still be CEOs or will there just be a CPU? <laughs> well, I think the job of the
1: CEO will definitely change, right? The, there will be plenty of things that they'll be able to automate down the stack. But you know, one of the things that struck me when I was reading both of your books is that a lot of the mathematicians that you talk about are, were failed poets right or people who aspire to be poets and in business school we talk about the poets and the quants <laughs> right and we talk about them as if they are you know opposite ends of, of a
0: spectrum are they supposed to be different people <laughs> that's right they're the different they're the different people what kind of decent business person would not be both poet and quant
1: well that's why I wanted to ask you what why do you see this why do you see this connection why do you think there are so many mathematicians who have tried to go down the poetry route and vice versa
0: I mean, I'll say this. I didn't know there was going to be that much poetry in this book when I started writing it. I didn't know that that connection was going to come up again and again. But like, you know, fundamentally, like mathematics is a creative activity. I say somewhere in the first book, like all mathematical writing is creative writing because we are like making things. We're like making knowledge. And so it's pretty natural to me. I think those are sort of obviously allied. And I think the idea that they're not, is almost a little insulting to math, right? I mean, I think there is like a point of view that says like, oh, if you're sort of thinking of things quantitatively, that's removing the human element, right? I'm a baseball fan. I don't know if you like baseball. This was like a huge part of baseball discourse. Oh, like the people who study statistics, they're like ruining the human aspect of baseball and turning baseball into a spreadsheet. Well, guess what? We live in a world in which every team has like an army of statistical analysts and you can watch the games and it's not a spreadsheet right? It's still baseball. Like you go out there and because of the statistics, you see crazy stuff like the shift and like four guys all standing on one side of the infield. You know what I mean? Like creativity, you see creativity and innovation that is there because of the spreadsheet, but they're still playing the game and it's still exciting. So, I mean, what I would say is, you know, math is like a fundamentally human activity. Every single human society that's ever existed does it. And if we sort of slice off either our poetic side or our quantitative side we're just like slicing off like part of our human nature why would we do that
1: yeah perhaps people are confusing math with computation right and maybe computation is seen as kind of uh, less less poetical in a way because it's it's pre-programmed
0: the people who are like i'm a quant and like, do this psychology for me because i don't know these folks the students if you have a student in business school who's like i'm a quant i'm not a poet i'm not one of them i want to me do they really think like oh, I'm just pushing a button on the spreadsheet. Like, that's my job. Like, I, I want to be as robotic as possible. That can't possibly be the way they see themselves.
1: Right. They see themselves as lacking people skills or failing to understand psychology. And, and they'll say, well, you know, there's the, maybe it's when it comes to persuasion, they say, I'm going to focus on the logos and don't ask me anything about the pathos or the ethos, right? Maybe that's sort of the, I mean, it's such a, there's even a periodical called Poets and Quants, which is sort of the 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 journal that reviews the very it's the inside baseball so to speak of the of the business school admissions market. But but I think there's another point that you make. Well first of all there's another thing which is there are all these religious people who are doing math. And and I think maybe that's that to me sounds a little bit more I- intuitive in a sense, right? Because although maybe not in the modern world, people might think, oh of course, you know, if you're math, you're science, et cetera, you can't be religious. But when you look at the I mean, even Pythagoras. I mean, Pythagoras was, was a, had a, some crazy religion. <laughs> you can't eat beans and so forth. But, but that, I think that connection might be a little stronger. But, but the other point that you make is this idea that, you know, math can't all be quarterbacks. You need some offensive linemen in math. And that a lot of people are discouraged from the profession of math because they, they don't feel like they're the, you know, Aaron Rodgers in the room. So why is that unique to math, do you think? This highly kind of competitive, or maybe it's true in poetry or, or painting, right? Where if you don't think of yourself
0: as very good, you say, okay, I'm, I'm gonna leave this to the to the Picassos. I do have a vague sense that like painting culture is kind of like that. I don't really know very much about it from the inside, but I do think certainly in a, in a school context, I think that people think of math that way and I think it's a shame, right? Like nobody's like, that person like, understands like Shakespeare like so much better than me so I'm not even gonna like try to read Shakespeare right like nobody does that nobody even even at the level of sports I mean like if you're on the team you know you may not be the best tennis player on the tennis team but it doesn't mean you're gonna quit it doesn't mean you're like okay I'm not going pro so I'm like not gonna play like no you like understand that there's like an inherent value to the game right and I think um we should see math like that that it has an inherent value and like not be even even sort of setting aside the extremely complicated question of what it means to be the best at math. I mean, do you think I'm I'm just constantly I feel like I'm constantly turning this around on you asking about business school culture, because I'm fascinated by it. And I know like very little about it. I mean, there must be like a million people out there who run like a regional business that provides a service that people want. And it's good. And they make a lot of money. And they have a nice house and like three cars. And like, they're not like, on the cover of a business magazine. They're not in the Fortune 500, but they're providing something. Don't they feel good about themselves? Are those people like, damn it, like I'm not the richest man in America. Like, I don't have three private jets. <laughs> I, mean, what, I mean, what's the What's the culture?
1: There's there certainly plenty of people who are content with that. There's plenty of people who are not. I like to tell a story about Larry Ellison who got extremely upset when he, he didn't have the largest yacht in the world. <laughs> you know, it, was, it was extremely upsetting to him. You know, most of us would be pretty happy with the size of the yacht that he had, but he was extremely unhappy. So they, people can be hyper, hyper, hyper competitive. But what they don't do is they don't give up. They don't say, OK, I'm just going to go and tend my garden at this point. You know, they they just keep keep trying, I think, for those competitive people.
0: The thing is, the culture of math as a profession is very different from the culture of math in the classroom. In the classroom, you have this thing of people quitting because they're like, Oh, this other kid is better than me. So, like, why should I do it? Which is like very weird, partly because in the culture of math research, look, even if you think you're like the best mathematician alive, which again, what the hell does that mean? Bracket that question out. You're not Gauss, right? You're not (laughs) Riemann. Like, what, you know, you're, I mean, you can always be like, I mean, and yet the difference is that I think math culture, look, I'm going to give like a very Pollyanna ish optimistic view of math culture there are countervailing views which are valid and like you should hear them too but i'll just give the optimistic view which is that it's not like we're not competitive with each other but we're also fundamentally communalistic like we're all we're fundamentally all working towards the same goal and we're all doing it together and every one of us knows that if there's some theorem we're trying to prove we may get it and we may not but if we don't somebody else will <laughs> right we're we're also sort of like working together and like we as a community will sort of make progress and move towards the goals. And 100 years from now, it doesn't matter like which person was the person who like pushed the stone over the line.
1: Well, now, which goal is that, right? Because you talk about the pursuit of truth, you know, I think kind of the platonic view, but then you also say that, you know, while mathematicians might be Platonists half the week, they're kind of formalists, you know, on on, on the weekend, right? Which means that they're not really pursuing truth in some abstract sense they're just kind of working within the rules right you say okay assume the rules and now let's go from there right i mean is there a tension there and, and i'm a lawyer too so you know when you started bringing in legislative and statutory interpretation i was like all right now this is my my domain and i, and I thought there were some fascinating analogies there i mean you try to bring in every discipline but the the
0: law stuff was particularly interesting i go back and forth on this and i wonder what you think because you know i read legal arguments and there's a part of me that's like these folks are trying to treat the law like it's math and it's just not and you can feel the gear starting to strip right you can feel the kind of intellectual tension that they want it to be more like math than it is they're like i want it to be the case that by the statutes as written i can derive the answer to this question and so part of me is like well that's bad they should stop pretending that law is like math and they shouldn't do this but then another part of me thinks well maybe there's a virtue in pretending like, maybe the, maybe there's a virtue in having that as an aspirational goal that, like, to the extent that it's possible, you should try to derive, to the extent that it's possible, you have to maintain this kind of quasi-fiction that there are right answers in law and that we can work them out from what's written on the page. And that if you sort of give up on that as an ideal, like, you're completely hosed. But I find it a complicated question, actually, the relationship, and I don't know enough law to, like, really adjudicate it.
1: Well, I think there are a lot of people that don't believe there is such a thing as a legal domain of knowledge, right? A legal way of thinking that that it's just borrowed from the outside world, right? So I think certainly like if you read the New York Times and they are evaluating a recent Supreme Court opinion, they're evaluating it entirely in terms of its, its impact and its effects, right? And so they'll say, well, you know, it has this effect, so it must be in alignment with this political position. But if, you, if you're if you trained as a lawyer, you're like, well, okay, hold on a second. There There's this legal argument, which is independent of the effects that flow from that, that I argument. I mean, again,
0: ideally and aspirationally, yes.
1: Yeah. But I mean, at the end of the day, like you can't be purely, you know, you have to bring in some stuff from the outside world, whether it's just the meaning of a word or, I mean, there's no way that you, but, but if you acknowledge that, I mean, some people would argue that if you're just a complete pragmatist, you know, like Judge Posner, then you've sort of in many ways kind of given up on the rule of law, right? Because the law is this, this idea that's, there's this, this abstract correct way of interpreting a statute. And the the debate is really what's the correct way to interpret it. And then there's different theories about what constitutes correct interpretation, but in many ways, it's really more like literary criticism than it is like, I mean, I use the analogy of math. I don't know whether that makes it more like math or makes it more like literary criticism, but there's definitely tension there. And, and so in math, do you feel that tension?
0: I, you know, Posner would say like, okay, but is it better to like, is it worse to give up on it? Or is it worse to give up on it and cloak yourself in a claim that you're adhering to the rule of law when you're actually sort of doing the same kind of pragmatic, motivated reasoning as anyone else? You're just not admitting it. That's a hard question that I don't have a solid answer to. But you asked, do I feel that tension? not really i do think mathematics is kind of a mature culture in some sense like we've developed norms over like thousands of years that like work reasonably well and are reasonably productive i mean but i would say i'm going to come back to something you said at the beginning because you were asking me is really is the point truth is that we're seeking or are we sort of doing this kind of something that's more like a game like a language game where you have a certain rules define a line as boom and i would say actually it's neither of those that's my answer it's understanding which is not the same thing as truth and not the same thing as sterile rule following. So in other words, like you know, the example I give and this is what I read about in the new book and it's to this question that you asked, about: are we going to be replaced? If there was a machine that could just very reliably split out answers, you know, is the Riemann hypothesis true or false? Okay. It's true. Like here's a certificate and it's like sort of two or 3 billion characters that constitutes a formal proof of that fact. You know what? I don't care. Absolutely do not care do not care if the Riemann hypothesis is true or false. What I care about is understanding what would make it true. (laughs) And if the machine can't provide me that, it hasn't provided me with something that I as a mathematician am interested in. So, you know, figuring out which things are true and which things are false are the way we test whether or not we've understood things, but understanding like what the world is, is ultimately the goal.
1: Yeah, and I think the best example of this for me, which uh, really, lit my brain up for a few few hours, which is always a good thing. <laughs> and I forget which book it was in, but you just posed the question like, what is zero divided by zero? Right? And we want to know, well, what is it? What is it? And <laughs> and i think you 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 go through a couple just simple examples which it doesn't take long to convince you that the answer is well it kind of depends right and of course that's my default answer for you know every question in my classroom but you know you don't think in math that the answer is it it depends but there are these special cases where of course it does depend and it's that process of walking through all the different depends that gives you that i think sense of it's a sense of joy. It's a uniquely human sense of discovery. And even though you haven't arrived at an answer, which is, I guess, there's always an element of frustration there. There's an element of joy that, that comes with it.
0: Right. And an element of creativity and an element of freedom. I mean, and that's in some sense, I mean, I love talking about zero over zero with students because it really brings you face to face with the question. If somebody says, like, what is that? The only answer is it's like a figure of ink on a page. Right. What do you mean? What is it? Like, this is what it is. It's like three symbols that I wrote near each other. The question is, what should we mean by it? And people don't think the word should has a place in mathematics, but it definitely does. Right. There are value judgments in mathematics. It is up to us to declare what we mean when we write zero divided by zero. And it's not so much that there is a right answer and a wrong answer as that there are better answers than worse answers, and we can sort of argue as human beings about what makes them better or worse. And I do think to some extent, we probably don't publicize enough, not only that that is an aspect of math, but that that's at the heart of math.
1: Well, that that's ultimately an aesthetic choice to some degree, right? And that there's an element of, of normativity, implied normativity in the aesthetics, right?
0: Aesthetic, but practical too, right? I mean, in the sense of like, we like definitions that we can do things with and that are effective. Right.
1: So, I mean, you're channeling Keats, right? <laughs> so truth is beauty and beauty truth. Jordan, look, this has been fantastic. You really did make me think quite a bit in reading both of these these books. And I, I never thought of myself as a mathematician. I thought I abandoned it a long time ago for other disciplines. But now I, I'm, I'm going to start thinking of myself a bit as a mathematician and a geometer because you've highlighted how it really is kind of the, the DNA of everything that we do in social sciences and natural sciences.
0: My work here is done. (laughs) I've made made (laughs) another convert.
1: (laughs) You have indeed. Uh, So thank you so much for joining me and you should, everyone should check out book shape, which is now in paperback and also how not to be wrong or should be subtitled how to be wrong better thank you jordan i like that
0: it's a mouthful but it's more (laughs) thanks so much for having me on thank you for tuning in to the unsiloed podcast if you enjoyed today's episode please give us a five-star rating and review to listen to other episodes please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com